The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We're going to be uh, reading today from Genesis 2.25 through 3.24. I think that's up on, on the screen for us, so you can follow there if you don't have a Bible. Um, and, uh, while you're turning there, let me tell you a little bit that, uh, that this passage or this book, Genesis, the first book of the Bible was written by Moses. If you didn't know that he wrote the first five books of the Bible, the good thing or the interesting thing about, um, Genesis and the fact that, that Moses wrote it, he wrote it to a people who were coming out of exile, out of Egypt. And so when you look at the wording of it and you read through it, think this is written to a people who were previously worshiping the gods of Egypt. And so there's very specific language in there that's directed towards that people to say, Israel, the creator God is your God. This God who does these various different things is your God. And his language is quite specific for that. Let's go ahead and read Genesis 2, 24, correction, 2, 25 through 3, 24. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave also, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave me she gave me the fruit she gave me fruit of the tree and i ate it <laughs> 
Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good from evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord God, for your word today. Lord, I pray that you would bless this as we speak of it today, as we learn of it. Holy Spirit, would you come and and cause me to speak with power? Would you open the hearts and minds of, of those who hear the word? May it be to hearts that you have prepared this week to receive it. Lord, and would you bless each hearer? Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I once knew a family who taught their kids, little kids, toddlers, so from the time they were toddlers, taught them that if they told a lie, a little light came on on their forehead. It was very, very effective, as you can imagine. So, you know, Johnny... Did you eat a cookie? Nope. Didn't touch it. You know, did you do that? Nope. It was Susie. And that went on all the time. And somehow, mom always caught them. And they couldn't figure out how until they got a little older, you know, and caught on that 
Susie didn't have a light that came on on her head when she was lying. They eventually caught on, as you can imagine. But at first, it was a great deal. Because every time they lied, they hid something. They hid that light so that mom wouldn't know. Our story today is much like that. Because Adam and Eve, when sin enters the world, when they disobey God, when they break his commands, they hide. And we have been, in reality, hiding ever since. The reality of our sin is that it brings shame, it brings guilt, and it causes us to blame others. And the reason or the, or the effect of shame and guilt and blame is that we try and hide. And the effect of hiding is that it separates us first from God and from one another. And the end state of today's message is that Christ came to restore. Christ came to forgive, to cancel out shame, to cancel out guilt, to remove the separation that sin has caused and to bring you together with the Father and to make it so that you can love one another. In our passage today, we learn some key things about who God is, who man is, and that relationship. We say that that shame and that guilt and that blame result in broken relationships, broken relationships with God and broken relationships with other people, specifically broken between Adam and Eve. We see that the price of sin is rightful judgment by a holy God. But we also see grace and hope and a means to be restored, given by that God. There is hope in the end of this story for the future. So today's message, I want you to walk away really with three th three key things. First, we were created to be in relationship first with God and then with other people. Now in this story specifically, that is the husband and wife. But we can take that in a broader sense to all people. We were created to be in relationship with God and man. Secondly, our relationship both with God and with man are broken by sin. And thirdly, God provides a means to restore relationships. And we'll look at each of those today. Now as we start, our first point today being we were created to be in a relationship with God and man. I, I want to take a moment to go backwards, not forwards, into this passage. And so I want to look at first Rome, uh, Romans, no, Genesis 1.26. Genesis 1.26 tells us that there, and this is part of this creation story, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, 
Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. My point here is to say that God is about relationship from the beginning because that is who God is. We serve a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-existent, co-eternal. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always been in relationship with one another. And so when we are created, we are created to be in relationship with them. And they have always experienced a perfectly loving, perfectly submitted relationship to one another. They have always been in relationship. And we, as those who are created, are are invited into that relationship. So God created us for relationship. As we continue to look at that, let's look at how God created man. As you move into chapter 2. It tells us in verse 2-7, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. This is unbelievable when you think about this. This is amazing. This is a very intimate story here. So the the words, the language that's used for the man and the forming and the shaping of the man would be much like a sculptor would use or, or a potter who's working with clay. He shapes it. He forms it by hand. It's very intimate. But it gets more intimate because then he breathes life into it. And this breathing, this this word that's used here is wind, it's spirit, it's life, and it's breath. All those words are used in this word that's here. All those meanings are connoted with that one word of breath of life. And I think of it like, can you imagine, you've got this, this thing that you have created, you've molded, you've shaped out of dirt. And God reaching down, almost like CPR. Have you ever done baby CPR or child CPR? Are you familiar with that? What that looks like? So with that one, unlike with just adult CPR, where you just put your your mouth over that mouth. With the child, with a baby, you put it over their mouth and their nostrils. And you breathe into it. So God does CPR, if you will, on this creature of dust that he's made and he breathes life into what was dead he breathes life into what is inanimate that's very intimate this God who you are in relationship with knows you intimately this is the God we serve this is the God who created Adam let's go on because in this relationship he doesn't just create him and let him go no he speaks with him We see in in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2, and the Lord God commanded the man. Like he's right there. They're speaking together. And he says to him, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So this is a God who cares about his future. He's giving him direction. He's speaking to him directly. Keep on reading. Because here we find that, that God is concerned that man has no one that's like him to be in relationship with. So he's got a relationship with God, but he doesn't have a relationship with something that is like him. So he says in verses 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So, okay. Then we go into this weird little section, or it seems like a weird section. So, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. I think this is kind of cool relationally. It's like you have a child and you... Put them out in the field and see what is their reaction to all the things that they see. What do they call them? And God, you can imagine just delighting in this man as he sees these things for the first time and gives them a name. You know, like, what did, what, what did he call a platypus for the first time when he saw that thing? I mean, I'm like, you know, that's, he saw a duck, he saw a beaver, and then you bring up this thing that's like a... Deaver. I don't know. It's like, it's, it's this thing that's a mix. You know, how did he react to that? How did he react when he saw like the first elephant or the first giraffe? You know, I mean, all these things that are unique in the way that they're designed. And you can just imagine God delighting over him because God delights over his creation. And we're part of that creation that he delights over. So he gives him all these things to name. But out of them, he doesn't find, Adam doesn't find one that's like him. It says, but for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused him to be in a deep sleep, to fall on the man. And while he slept, he took a rib. He took one of his ribs and, and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought him to him, brought him to the man. Then the Lord said, or then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother, his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So in this passage, what goes on here, what we see is that God has delighted in man, but he wants to have something. He, he gives this gift to man of another human being. Two people made from one man. And then he joins them together in what is the first marriage so that they will become one again. And so what we've seen so far is that God creates man to be in relationship first with him and then with another person. 
God is all about relationship. Let me give you one more. We're going to jump ahead over to 3.8 real quick. We'll come back. But he says in verse 3.8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now we'll just stop right there with that part. But the language here, the way it's written in the Hebrew, just gives you this sense that this is something that happens all the time. It's not like a one-off. It didn't just happen for the first time. But, but this is a continual event. This is a normal event. So that Adam and Eve were in the garden, and it was a normal thing that God would show up and walk with them in the cool of the evening. Now, I don't know about you, but in my head, I think, that's really cool. I mean, like, you know, hey, God shows up, we go out for a walk, we hang out, God says, hey, what are you doing today? It's not like he didn't know already, he's God. But nonetheless, you know, hey, what are you doing today, Mike? You know, how was it going? How were things? Like, how cool is that? God is about relationship. That's what he does. That's who he is. And he invited us to be a part of that relationship. The sad part is, the story doesn't continue that way. See, something's about to change dramatically as we go into chapter 3. Because the man and the woman are going to sin. They're going to break God's laws. They're going to break his commandment. And when we do, it's going to separate them. It's going to break that relationship. And so, let's take a look at how that happens. That perfect relationship, if you can think about it, is going to be destroyed in something so cataclysmic. It's going to have such cataclysmic effects. It's, it's like the tsunami that happened in 2004. It just completely changes the landscape when it came in. And if you were to go back even to those cities and towns and areas where the tsunami struck, like in Aceh province of Indonesia, they are still not the same they were, the, way, the same as they were when that event occurred. The after effects of it, even 15 years later, are still being felt. And they'll continue to be. And that's the case for us as well. And that's the effect of sin on us. The effect of sin on our relationship with God. So, he says here, in chapter 3, I want to look at this. First, there's two things I want us to remember. First, is temptation. Because that's the, that's the gets us to the point of sin. And so I want us to understand a little bit about how temptation works. And then once we sin, sin has an effect. And we'll look at what that is. So, in here, we start off with, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Something important to understand. Who made the serpent? The Lord God. Not Satan. The Lord God. And so if God made that serpent in the beginning, he called it good. And so there's something to understand about temptation right up here in the front. Things that God has called good, that are generally speaking good, can 
become the very things that are a temptation to us. Does that make sense? Do you understand how that can flow? Something that is good in and of itself can be the very thing that is the delivery means of our temptation. And we should be aware of that. Now it says the snake was more crafty. Now, God made it that way. With purpose and with intention. But it is interesting that Satan chooses to use something like the snake, which is more crafty than any other beast of the field. And that snake comes to the woman. Now, first, let me tell you, if the first time a snake starts talking to me, I'm not going to hang out wherever that snake is. And I'm always amazed at this. Like, oh, there's this snake, and it starts talking to Eve. And she's like, like yeah, sure, this is, this is what happens every day of my life. So either something was very different at the time, or she's just used to really crazy cool things happening. All right, so back to our story. He, the snake, said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? Think about that for a second. Did God actually say you shall not eat of the, any tree of the garden? Was that what God said? No. Obvious. Duh. Why would he start off with something so, you know, obviously wrong if he wants to tempt her? Keep that in mind. We may eat, she said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, do not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, we just read 2.16, God gave the command. Who did he give the command to? Who? Adam? Where was Eve? Not even created yet. Wasn't even there. So how did she get this command? Well, presumably through Adam, right? But is it the right command? No, it's not. I mean, she's got part of it, right? Okay, yeah. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. That's correct. But then she adds in this other thing. Neither shall you touch it. And then she goes back to the correct thing again. Lest you die. I believe Satan's going to use that against her in a few seconds. In the next couple of verses. Now, I can see what Adam might have done here. Now, it doesn't tell us this. I'm, it's pure conjecture on my part. But I've got kids. And I know how I do things. And so, if my children were, were playing around in the kitchen because it's a small house. They're little. I'm thinking, I don't want them to touch the stove. So, what do I tell them? Don't touch the stove. It's hot. You'll get burned. That's what my mama told me. Makes sense that I would tell my kids that. But as you think about it, what happens? They're playing in the kitchen. The matchbox goes under the stove. The kid, just not even thinking, reaches in, touches the stove in the process, grabs out the matchbox. Nothing happened. Hmm. Okay. One off. 
They're playing in the kitchen. They're throwing the ball back and forth. He goes up to catch the ball. Uh, got it. Boom. Bumps into the stove. Guess what? He didn't get burned. The stove's not hot. Because it's 10 o'clock in the morning. It's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Nothing's going on. But then, one morning, little Johnny comes out, and it's, you know, it's 6 o'clock in the morning. Mom's scrambling up some eggs. Johnny looks up. There's this really pretty red color up there. It is beautiful. And what's he do? So that's what I was trying to get him not to do in the beginning. But he'd already touched that stove three or four times and it wasn't hot. Why would it be this time when the pretty little flower was up there? See, I can see what Adam was thinking. He's like, dude, just don't even touch it. Girl, don't even go near that tree. Just, just stay away from it because we're going to die. If you even touch it, you'll die. Because that's what he's thinking. Like, I just don't want you to even come near it. But in doing that, he's taught her the wrong thing. He hasn't helped her in the end. And it's going to be the same thing the Jews are going to do later. They're going to say, okay, God said don't do this thing, so we're going to build this real big wall around the outside of that and say don't do this thing either. And Christ is going to come and say, look, you have put such a heavy burden on the people. They can't get out of it. The weight is so heavy. Because you've gone beyond what God said. And it just creates problems. So as you, when we teach God's word, we want to be careful what we teach. And we want to teach God's word. And yet we want to warn the people. We want to be clear that that's not what God said. I'm just giving you this warning. Because this is what God said. It'll keep people out of trouble. So the story goes on. And the serpent then says in verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Do you see what he's done here? In these two temptations, what Satan has really done is said, God is not good. God is not for you. God is selfish. God wants to keep the best things for himself. That's what these temptations are about. It's exactly what they're about. The lie that Satan is planting, what he starts in the very beginning. Did God say any of these, you can't eat of any of these trees? Well, no. But what gets put in your head is, well, God would be selfish to do something like that. God wouldn't be good if he did something like that. And then he, she says, well, but I would die if I ate of that one tree that's in the middle of the garden. And then he just contradicts God completely and says, no, you won't die. Why does he tell her that? You won't die because God's just withholding something good from you. He just told you that. He just told you that. It's not true. He won't let you die. And in fact, the reality is that if you take this thing that God said you're not supposed to, you'll be wise. You'll be like God. He just says God's a liar. 
See, this is what Satan does to us all the time. He does it to you every single day. And you need to understand what temptation is all about. It is all about God has withheld some good from you. Your good is not in God. Your good is someplace else. Whatever that thing may be. Whatever it is that you desire that's outside of God. Maybe it's another woman or another man. Wow, that's better than the one I, I'm married to. That's where it'll be better. Or this job that God's got me in, well, it would be better if I, if I had this one over here. This church that I'm in, well, it would be better if I was in this one over here. Whatever it is, wherever God's got you, it's like saying, what God desires for me is not really my good. There's something better. And God just wants to hold me back from that because he's not really good. That's what temptation is at its core, that God isn't good. So be careful. Always ask yourself, when you're starting to feel tempted, what lie does Satan want me to believe? When you're starting to feel tempted, what lie is it that he's telling me that there's something better than what God has for me? How is he trying to convince me that God really isn't as good as he says he is? Well, as we pick up on the story in verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took the fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her. Wow. So God said, this is going to kill you. And she says, it's good for food. God says, delight in me. And what she saw is that thing that was out there that she was told she couldn't have that would kill her is what she desires. And it's beautiful to her eyes. That very thing that God said will bring you death, she said, it'll make me wise. Look, the reality for every one of us is we're no different than her. Because in the end, what she wants is to be like God. And every one of you, me included, want to be God. Don't believe me? Think about it a second. When you want something, when do you want it? Now. And if God says, hmm, you need to wait on that. What's your reaction? We get frustrated, we get angry, and our tendency, if you heard the story of Abraham, I'll make my own kid, tired of waiting on God, finds Hagar, right? That didn't go so well. But that's true with so many things that we do. Our tendency is to say, I will be my own God and I will make this happen under my power and my strength because God isn't really good. He isn't really wise. And I want to be like God. In fact, not just like God, I want to be God. That's what Satan wants. 
And so Satan's trying to get you to believe the same lie that he's been selling from the beginning. The same thing that he desires. Not what God desires, but what he desires. I want to be God. And we're all like that. And so it's just good to recognize that in ourselves. I don't want to wait for God's timing. I don't want to wait for that perfect woman that God's got or that perfect man that God has planned for me. I'm tired of being single and therefore I will take this into my own hands. I'm tired of waiting for my spouse to come around. Therefore, I'm going to take things into my own hands. Take your pick of things. But in the end, we don't want to wait. We want to be our own God. We're not so different than her. So, she gives this fruit, and then she eats of it. Now, can you imagine? Just, just think about this for a second. So, here's the scenario. She comes up, certain serpent's telling her, oh, it's okay. Eat of this fruit. She comes up to it. She reaches it. And you can just see Adam over there, because he's standing right with her. Um, I always think of, like, Bill Cosby here. So, like, he's just, like, watching. As she's reaching out to grab this fruit, and, and he's sitting there going, oh! Waiting for lightning to fall out of the sky and fry her. Because she will surely die. But what happens? She takes the fruit. What doesn't happen? She'll fall over dead. Lightning doesn't fall from the sky. She's fine. Huh. So in her mind, she's like, well, that was a lie. That wasn't true. Maybe this is good for food after all. So she takes a bite. Guess what doesn't happen? She doesn't fall over dead. Huh. So maybe God wasn't right after all. Hmm. So she gives it to Adam. And Adam says, oh, yeah. And he takes a bite. Then what happens? Verse 7, then they, the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Sin had entered the world. Why did it take, wait till Adam to happen? Because Adam was given the command by God directly. That's why. And so when Adam sins, when Adam breaks God's command, boom. Eyes are open. Now, 225, they stood before each other, and really, before God, naked and unashamed. Sin enters the world in 3-7. What's the first thing that happens? Their eyes are open, and they sew fig leaves together to cover themselves. Because shame has entered the world. Because guilt has entered the world. And they don't know what to do with it. And so what do you do with it? You, you cover yourself up. You hide. You don't know what to do with it. What do you do when you get in a fight with somebody and you, you're the one who wronged them? And you know in your heart that you're the one who wronged them. Do you walk right up and apologize? I was wrong. No. Very rarely does that happen. No, first we go off 
someplace else and stay away from that person. Because we know we're wrong. And the last thing we want to do is say, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I was wrong. We hide. We try and cover it up. Oh, it really wasn't that bad. We blame somebody else. We blame that person. Well, it's your fault that I said that. You made me say that. You just pushed me and pushed me. No, it's my fault for saying that. It came out of my mouth. I am responsible for me. That's the reality. That's the truth of it. We chose to speak. We chose to do something. So, suddenly they're aware of it. Sin has entered the world. They cover themselves. Boom. What happens? God shows up. God shows up for his evening walk. In verse 3, 8, and he says, they're in the garden. It's cool today. What do Adam and Eve do? They hide themselves. Because sin has entered the world. What does the Lord say? The Lord says, where are you? Where are you? Not there. Not coming out for their walk. They've hidden themselves. Because that's what sin causes us to do. But, but God doesn't approach them in an angry tone or, or that kind of language that's angry. It's very relational still. Where are you? What have you done? He could have, and justly so, they could be dead. God could have very justly just struck them down because that was the promise that you will die. But he doesn't. Where are you? He gives them a chance to come forward and explain the situation. But that's not what happens. And I, and I want you to know the you there, where are you, was a very singular you. He's talking straight to Adam. And you know Adam knows it's him because Adam is the one who speaks up. And he said, that's Adam. I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? What does he respond with? He's hidden himself. Their shame has entered the world. He hid himself. Ha! It was the woman. It's her fault. And you know what, God? You're the one who gave her to me. So what do you think of that? Hmm? First he blames the woman, and then he blames God. Come on, there's only three people there. So, he blames the woman. He blames God. So what does God do? He turns around to the woman. Hey, what did you do? And what does the woman say? Uh, snake. Snake did it. Oh, man, that poor snake. He's got, got a chance. God just looks at the snake and curses him. Boom. You're down. You're out for the count. No more legs. You're gone. Curl on your belly the rest of your life. Forever and ever, all the generations after you, curl on your belly. You're cursed. So, so he tells that to the snake. Then in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring, your offspring. He should bruise your head. You should bruise his heel. We'll come back to that verse in just a second. Then to the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. 
That word that's, that's given in there, your desire shall be for your husband. The word would actually be toward your husband. And that word can be a positive word or it can be a negative word depending on what surrounds it. So in this case, the way scholars tend to look at this is your feelings shall be, your desire should be against your husband. Because she's going to want to be in charge. The second half of us, he shall rule over you. The word rule there is like a military rule, and it is with an iron scepter. It is, a, I am going to war to take dominion over something. Now, you remember back in 126, how did we read that? You can have dominion over the fish. You can have dominion over the birds. You can have dominion over the creeping things. You can have dominion over other people. No, it didn't say that. Nowhere in the creation story are we to have dominion over other people. See, the two are to become one. Not to have dominion over it. And that's the curse that falls on when sin enters our relationships. And so the relationship of the man and woman, although he's, he's saying it to the woman, the relationship of the man and the woman, their marriage, is brought into this curse now. The man, what happens with the man? Is the man cursed? No, it's the ground that gets cursed. It's the ground that gets cursed. And the, cur the ground will continue to get cursed actually up through the flood. And eventually God says, I will never again curse you know, the ground for what man did. And you'll hear Romans, Paul will talk about it in chapter 1, that, that he'll say that the, the very ground groans to be released. It's waiting for Christ's return so that it can be truly set free because it bears the burden of man's sin. So that's what goes on. Finally, in that section, in verse 19, it says, and oh, by the way, Adam, you're going to return to dust. Death is coming. Death will find you. You will return to the ground. Okay, let me quickly close out and say, God has a plan. In the midst of this cursing, before he says, I'm going to kick you out of the garden, he does two things. Look at verse 21. He says, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Sounds like a simple thing, right? Garments of skin, he clothed them. What? Think about that a second. Not just, just for a second. Um, how many of you have a dog? Cat? Pet squirrel? Anything. Okay. How many of you who have a pet have walked up to some... Could I borrow your coat today? And, you know, he just stands up, unzips it. Huh, sure, here. Can you hand me a towel, blanket? Ooh, I'd like to cover this. Um, no, that's not how that works. Now, it is possible that God, ex nihilo, that means out of nothing, created animal skins. But I would like to argue that that is not the case. That those skins came from living creatures that died. Because when you get to chapter 4, all of a sudden, Abel and Cain, no right sacrifices. And the right sacrifice is an animal. There's no mention of that before. Somewhere in there, that gets learned. 
And that sacrifice does what? What is it intended to do? Blood sacrifice covers sin. That's what the sacrifice, the whole rest of the Old Testament we talk about, blood covers sin. That's why Christ comes and gives himself as the perfect sacrifice. His blood covers our sin. So God, right here, has made a way for that relationship of Adam and Eve to be restored with God. By giving, by killing those animals and giving them something now to cover themselves with. Something durable, unlike fig leaves. Okay, last thing. I told you we were going to go back to 15. Because there's an eternal hope here as well. And that comes in verse 315. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is when she's talking, when God's cursing the snake. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the New Testament, they're going to bring this verse up and say, this, Paul's going to say, this is Christ. This is our first entry into who Christ was. The promise way back in Genesis 3 that there was going to be one who would come, a savior, a messiah, a conqueror, a deliverer, who would break the power of the enemy, one who would deliver God's people. And though God, though the Israelites looked for a a king who would sit on David's throne, it was never God's intent. It was always to be one who would come as a sacrificial lamb to give himself, to live a perfect life on your behalf, on my behalf. And then, at the cross, take your sin and my sin, the sin of every believer upon himself. And God would pour out that judgment that he had been holding for so long, his wrath against sin, he would pour it out on his son. And he would kill his son. And Jesus did that willingly. And he did it so that you would not have to. He did it because you could not. He lived a perfect life because you could not. He died in your place because you would not have been able to withstand God's wrath. So now, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you get his righteousness. You get the righteousness of Christ. It covers you like a, like a set of clothes. Christ took your sin. You get his righteousness. That's a beautiful exchange. It's a beautiful gift. And that's what's coming here. Right there in verse 3, or verse 15. That there is going to come one who will defeat the enemy. So Christ dies. And it looks like death has won. But God isn't finished. Because he raises him from the dead. Giving him power over sin and death. Handing him the keys of hell. And then he raises him to eternal life. And Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of the Father. Waiting for the Father to say, come back. Go and bring yours home. And that's what we're waiting for as well. 
for Christ's return. But we have the hope that is eternal life through Jesus Christ. The power of sin and death are broken. And that's where we live. And that's where this passage takes us in the end. We have eternal hope in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. God created us for a relationship. To be in a relationship with himself and other men. Sin breaks that relationship. But God, through his son, Jesus, provides a mean to restore that relationship. If you don't have that relationship, come talk to me today and I'll be happy to explain exactly how you can have that relationship with Jesus Christ. And through him, God the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for the word today. Lord, you are good. You are faithful. Lord, would you bless your word today. Would you, Father, restore our relationships. Lord, if we have wandered, Lord, I pray today that you would call us back. Lord, if we have sinned in some way against you, and it is keeping us from being in right relationship, Lord, your word tells us that you're right there. You're coming into the garden to walk with us, to restore that relationship. You never went anywhere. You never left. You kept pursuing. And Lord, even now, you pursue us. So Lord, I ask for just that restoration power this week to restore our relationships and our relationship with you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.